I hope you're enjoying our discussion about heaven, uh, that it's encouraging and challenging. <laughs> encouraging in the reality of the promises that we have in Jesus that are completed in Him, and challenging to want to dig deeper and learn more about Him. So may the Lord fill us this morning with the knowledge of Himself, that He would be glorified. This morning I want to continue the discussion about heaven, but I want to start by looking back before we look ahead. In part one, you may remember that I stated first and fundamentally that heaven is eternal life. Heaven has been described as the life of God gifted to the believer in Christ. It's a quality life, therefore, a quality of life rather than a quantity. I also stated that eternal life is possessed only by God. Man cannot attain, attain eternal life um, through any means. It's gifted to an individual by God by believing in His Son. Eternal life comes only from knowing God, and this knowledge of God comes only through Jesus Christ. Physical death cannot affect eternal life. In Christ we have new life, which is regeneration, abundant life, which is the process of sanctification, and eternal life, which is glorification. These are all gifts from God, and physical death cannot affect them. Eternal life guarantees the believer access to the third heaven, where God is after physical death and ultimately into the eternal heaven after Christ returned to the earth to rule and reign. With that thought in mind, finally, heaven is also a place. It's a place that Jesus said He would prepare for those who believe Him, believe in Him, and that He would come again, that where He is, we may be also. Now, In our time this morning, I want to go back to the very beginning. To consider a larger perspective of the plan of God for His creation regarding heaven or eternal life. I want us to look for a few minutes this morning in the book of Genesis at the creation of the world when God created the first man, Adam, out of the dust of the earth in a garden called Eden in the east. Nancy Guthrie describes Eden as an outpost of heaven on earth. I really like that. An outpost of heaven on earth. It conjures up in my mind immediately uh, an opening scene for a movie simply called The Outpost. But I digress. In the vast expanse of all that God created, there was a small outpost, if you will, on planet earth where he initiated his greatest project to date. One that he would at times regret but not waver from, one that ultimately would cost His only begotten Son in order to rescue and redeem His chosen people. It's interesting that God created a garden, not a palace or some celestial place to live in, but rather a garden. And the garden that God created was not heaven, but it was a glimpse, I believe, of what heaven will be on a much grander scale. Now, chapter 1 of Genesis describes 
the six-day process in which God created the universe. Verse 1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's clear if we meditate on that one verse that the earth, this planet that we call home, was central in the plan of God in His creation. In the beginning, He created the earth and the heavens that surround it. Which heaven is scripture, scripture referring to here? Certainly the atmospheric heaven. But since the word is plural, it may also refer to the highest heaven or third heaven where he would live, rule, and reign until his completion of his plan. Now it's important to note that God did not exist in the heavens. He created them. So prior to the act of creation, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed outside of the heavens that He created. Genesis chapter 2 begins by telling us that on the seventh day, God rested from His work of creation, and He blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. The seventh day was to be a day devoted to sacred purposes. Matthew Henry in his commentary notes that God did not rest as one weary, but as one well pleased. (laughs) He rested because he was well pleased in what he had done, what he had created. The first chapter of Genesis gives the broad strokes account of the creation. And then in chapter 2, God zooms in to focus more detail concerning the creation of man. So let's look together at Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made heaven and earth. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's interesting, I think, first to note that until verse 4 of chapter 2, God has only used His name Elohim, God in the plural sense, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In verse 4, He identifies Himself for the first time as the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh is the self-existent, eternal name of God. Elohim is the supreme God or deity, the Lord God. Tony Evans notes, with the introduction of the name Lord, Yahweh, with God, Elohim, in these verses, God introduced Himself relationally to His creation. God made Adam from the same ground that he was to oversee. God also breathed into Adam the breath of life. Genesis 2.7. Now in Hebrew, the name Adam refers to that which comes from the ground. God made man's body from the dust of the ground, 
but He created man's soul by breathing the breath of life into him. Evans points out that Adam was at one time and the same time a piece of dirt and the bearer of God's own breath. A piece of dirt and the bearer of God's own breath. Like Adam, we all are a fusion of the divine and the dusty. Matthew Henry makes splendid observation, I think, when he says, man was made of the small dust, such as is on the surface of the earth. The soul was not made of the earth as the body. Pity then that it should cleave to the earth and mind earthly things. To God we must shortly give an account how we've employed these souls. And if we be found that we have lost them, though it were to gain the world, we are undone forever. Fools despise their own souls by caring for their bodies before their souls. And that reminds me of a quote from Jim Elliott, the uh, martyred 29-year-old missionary to the Hurani people of Ecuador, who said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So our bodies originate from the dirt, but our souls originate from the breath of God. So we should tend to our souls more so than our bodies, but both to the glory of God. The New American Standard Version, which I'm reading from, says in verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there He placed the man whom He had formed. Before Adam there were no shrubs, no plants had sprouted, and no rain had fallen from the heavens because there had been no man to cultivate the ground. Adam was created in the image of God to have fellowship with God and to tend his garden. It was after he breathed life into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being that the Lord God then planted a garden in Eden and placed Adam in it. Verse 15 reads, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it, and to keep it. Adam was to be the gardener of the garden, but he was also to be the guardian of the gardener of the garden to keep it. He was to keep it. There was a simple set of instructions that God gave the man at this outpost. He said, "The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat." For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. I can imagine Adam thinking this through, and maybe he didn't say it out loud, but thinking, okay, I can eat of any of these trees except that one. Got it. That one, I eat, I die. Got it. One question, what is die? (laughs) Unfortunately, he would learn the meaning of die in several painful ways. Continuing in Genesis 2 with verses 18 through 23, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. 
and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, Now this is, my, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woman, because she was taken out of man. I don't think the derivation of that word, Greg, is, is woe, man. But again, I digress. God knew that this was too big a task for Adam to do on his own. He needed a helper, for it was not good for man to be alone. Perhaps a pet would help. God formed animals and birds from the ground and let Adam name them. But none of those satisfied the longing that the Lord God had placed within Adam for a helper. Every creature was formed from the dust except Eve. God used a rib taken from Adam to fashion her. She was created for him and came from him. We then close out chapter 2 with verses 24 through 25. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The Lord God had created this outpost of heaven on earth with a purpose, which is laid out in Genesis 1:28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. There were big expansion plans for this little outpost. As Nancy Guthrie points out, it was God's intention that the garden would spread so that the whole earth would become a home, one He would share with His image bearers. God created all the food they needed along with trees and plants that were pleasing to the eye. God created a garden that brought peace and pleasure in the midst of work and rest. And behold, it was very good. Then evil slithered into the garden in the form of a serpent. Adam was supposed to cultivate the garden and keep it, secure it, subdue it. He failed to secure the garden and to subdue the serpent. Adam and Eve listened to the serpent. They were intrigued with his smooth-talking tales of grandeur. Satan was like a union boss whipping up the employees of this outpost and calling them to rebellion. God had given them very specific instructions to Adam. Eat freely from any tree in the garden, but not this tree. If you eat from it, you will surely die. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. (laughs) For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They were ashamed. 
Satan called God a liar, and Eve listened to him. She carried on a conversation with him. Then she entertained the thought and rationalized, hmm, this fruit looks pretty good. Looks like it's good to eat. And it'll make me wise? (laughs) If you watch those infomercials long enough, you start believing them. So she went for it, and she dragged Adam into it too. John Bloom is noted regarding this encounter with the serpent. As long as Adam and Eve believed God, they would have life, abundant life, full of the joy and sweet fellowship with their father. Trusting God with all their heart would have protected them. But when they listened to a deceiver and trusted in their own understandings, Proverbs 3, 5, it opened to them a world of horror. Their eyes and the eyes of all of us descendants were open to evil and binding complexities that none of us has the capacity to grasp. Fear and self-worship turned us pathologically selfish. We became susceptible to all sorts of deception. They knew immediately that they were naked before God and they'd made a terrible mistake. They could no longer live in the outpost of heaven because they could no longer stand in the presence of a holy God. Subsequently, they were cast out into the wilderness. Chapter 2, verse 24 says, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Have you ever wondered what happened to Eden, the Garden of Eden? Does it still exist? (coughs) Scripture doesn't give us any information, any more information about the garden. According to Genesis 2, 10 through 14, it was located somewhere in Mesopotamia, which would be modern-day Iraq. The area today is certainly no paradise. (laughs) It's pretty dry and arid, and after thousands of years of farming, um, it's taken its toll. Some believe that the flood in Noah's day may have destroyed the garden, and God let nature take its course. There's also the possibility that the garden still exists in a spiritual dimension and is still guarded by angels with flaming swords. We can't know for sure, so it's not really relative, but what is relative is that the Garden of Eden was a foreshadowing uh, or typification of the paradise to come. Man lost access to the outpost of heaven on earth, But then God established a second outpost in the temple. It was the most holy place in the temple where God came down to dwell among His people. Rather than walking with His people in the garden in the cool of the evening, though, only one person could enter the Holy of Holies, and that was only once per year. This, of course, was the high priest. This outpost of heaven was also marred by human sin. Then came Jesus Christ, who declared the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was the second Adam who came to live among sinners, yet without sin. He came to take away the sins of all who would believe in His name and confess with their mouths, He is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of His people. 
Jesus took the weight of our sin upon Himself, and despising the shame, He endured the cross. He died, was buried, then rose again the third day from the dead. He appeared to many over a 40-day period, and then He was lifted up into the clouds while His disciples witnessed His ascension. He was returning to the Father. He was going to prepare a place for us. And if He goes to prepare a place for us, He will return again, that where He is, we might be also. We live in the time of preparation for the return of the Lord God. Are we ready? <laughs> he will come suddenly as a thief in the night when we least expect it. And when the trumpet sounds and the sky splits, He will appear. The dead in Christ will rise, and we who are alive in Christ will rise to meet them in the air. God clothed Adam and Eve in animal skins before He sent them out of Eden. That was the first instance in Scripture where something had to die because of sin. For hundreds of years, animals were sacrificed to try to appease God for the sins of men. <coughs> Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed by, with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Then Christ came to be the sacrificial Lamb of God. No other sacrifice would ever be needed ever again. God has clothed us who believe in Him, clothed us with Christ. We are clothed in white linens that have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. Christ will return to rule and reign and to establish the new heavens and the new earth and we will experience an abundance and fulfillment in Him that will far outweigh what Adam and Eve experienced in the, that garden outpost of heaven. For Christ will establish the new heaven on earth. The tree of life that was in the midst of the garden even of Eden will be in the new heaven on the new earth. And it will expand to every side of the river of God. It will produce twelve kinds of fruit producing a new crop every month. God planted a garden and He placed a man there. Then He established a temple and He placed a priest there. Then heaven invaded earth when the Lord God sent His only begotten Son to redeem His own. He established a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He placed His Son on the cross with his blood, that His blood might cover the sins of all who believe in Him. And that by His resurrection from the dead, He would become the door that through which we might safely go to the place He has prepared for us. Jesus says to us in John eleven twenty five through 26 I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was in the temple. He went to Calvary's cross to die an unimaginably painful and vicious death. He was laid in a borrowed tomb from which He raised Himself from the dead by the power of His might. And then He ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father and from that seat of power, He's coming again. Jesus has reversed the curse of death. 
As the song declares, He lives, He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. And in closing this morning, I want you to read with me the amazing verses. We've been in Genesis, now we're going to Revelations. Chapter 22. Then He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be written on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And He said to me, These words are faithful and true. And the Lord God, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent His angel to show to His bondservants the things which would soon take place. Then Jesus declares, And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the incredible plan that you have, from the beginning of time, been working through to redeem a people unto yourself. I thank you, first of all, Father, that you desire to have relationship with us. So much so that you would send your own son to die a death that we can only imagine in order that we might be cleansed by his blood. That when you look at us, you see your son. Lord, I thank you that in scripture, you've given us all these promises about the place that you will, you're working on creating for us and that you are coming again, that where you are, we might be also. I pray today, Lord, that you would stir each of our hearts to, to love you more, <laughs> that you would do in us what you need to do to do through us what you want to do. So again, this morning, Father, we, we come before you and we place ourselves at your feet. We thank You for forgiveness of sins. We thank You for the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin in our lives. We ask that the things that we do and the things that we say, even the thoughts that we have, would be pleasing to You. Because our desire is to serve You in a way that brings You glory and brings You pleasure and joy. So thank You, Lord Jesus, again today for relationship, for a knowledge of you that gives us life. We thank you in your name. Amen.